We, we followed the flow of Revelation through two of the three sets of judgments by this point. We have seen the seven seals opened. We have seen the, the, the seventh trumpet has already blown. We're, we're poised for the, the final wrath of God to fall, the, the final sets of judgments to come, and that will bring us to the return of Christ, what we're waiting for even as we partake of these elements tonight. We should always be anticipating the time where our Lord will return and, and we will be able to partake in his presence. Well, we're poised here for that second coming of Christ. We believe that before this stage, before the tribulation begins, the, the rapture will occur, so we will not be here during the events we've been looking at in this period of time. But we are looking at what will happen after the church is gone. As you may recall, the, the tribulation timeline has inched forward, it's stopped, it's inched forward the, in the flow of, the, of John's vision that, the, that he was given. There were times he stepped out of the flow of time and was given these interludes that would give more of the backstory so that we could understand the judgments themselves more fully. Well, the tribulation timeline inched forward with the sounding of the final trumpet at the end of chapter 11. And then we had another pause that took us outside the flow of time again and gave us a backstory to the final judgments. The, the vision that, that John received during this extended interlude, it prepared us for the final wrath that, that is to come. In chapter 12, we, we had a synopsis of what I called the War of the Dragon. John saw Satan, the, the great dragon in the chapter, trying to destroy the nation of Israel so that he could prevent the, the birth of the Messiah. Obviously, he failed. Christ came and gave his life as atonement for those who would believe in him. So he failed at that attempt. And then John saw at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan would be expelled from heaven. He will then vent all of his hatred upon God, and, uh, or his hatred of God, he'll vent that upon God's people because at that point in time he knows his Duration is short. His time to inflict harm is limited. God, we, we saw, would protect the nation of Israel, so chapter 12 closed with Satan looking to make war with the rest of God's children, others who believed in, in the Messiah spread throughout the, the world at that time. In, in chapter 13, we met two individuals who serve as Satan's primary tools for making that war against God's people. We observe that Satan has always been the great imitator. He's always wanted to be like God the Father. So he introduces, or we meet an individual that he'll use that John calls the first beast in chapter 13. The one we know of the Antichrist, the one who will mimic God the Son. God even allows Satan to, to raise this person from the, the dead and, and to set himself up as ruler over the earth. Along with that first person that comes the second beast, the, the one that will be called the, the false prophet. He will come alongside the Antichrist and, and establish a worldwide religion that, that focuses worship on the Antichrist and Satan himself. He'll also, we, we saw in that chapter, connect all aspects of commerce to the, the religion of the beast. A couple of weeks ago, when we looked at chapter 14, we saw John through 144 witnesses from the, the tribes of Israel that were left on the earth. Those witnesses would spread out and, and introduce many people to Christ. They were witnesses for Christ. And then 
having completed their mission, we saw them standing before the throne, worshiping the Lord. That thus suggests, really, that the, the end of the tribulation is imminent. We, we saw, at, in that same time, three angels announcing the, the coming of the final judgments. They were heralding it over the, the whole earth. And chapter 14 concluded with, with a double scene of final judgment as Christ reaped the earth. And with a picture of very sudden judgment, and also we saw a picture of the wine press of God's wrath, where there was massive bloodshed produced as God's judgment fell upon rebellious humanity. That's where we left off a couple weeks ago when we stepped away from this series for a week. Tonight we're moving into John's record of the final judgments, the, the series that we call the bowl judgments. The, the brevity of John's vision at this point should, should not mislead us in regard to the, the magnitude of what he sees. These are God's final judgments on mankind. God is withdrawing his grace and mercy. He's pouring forth his righteous anger. It is a horrible, horrible thought to see God, or a horrible picture to think of what will come as God withdraws grace and mercy and pours out anger. Let's begin by looking at our text this evening. We're in chapter 15, and in chapter 15 we have an introduction to the bowls. Chapter 15 is a short chapter, yet it's important in John's vision as if John's given a heavenly introduction to the bold judgments. My, my plan is just to walk through this short chapter in, in three quick steps. In, in verse 1, John sees the arrival of the end. He writes... Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. John shifts here to this new scene in his vision where he sees another sign. He's seen a couple signs already. They were back in, in chapter 12. He saw the woman who represented Israel. He saw the dragon who, who was Satan. Well, this sign they sees now represents the, the culmination of divine wrath. John sees seven angels who fill up the wrath of God and bring it to a finish. As soon as he sees that, his attention is quickly distracted from the, the seven angels as he sees and hears praise for the arrival of the end. Somewhat unexpectedly, verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who do not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. These verses are a surprising contrast to, to what we expect to read next. If, if these angels are given these plagues, if they come forth, we, we expect the final seven plagues of great doom to strike the earth. And, and instead, John notices that in heaven, there, there's a, a scene of, of victory there's a scene of peace, even tranquility, actually, among the participants. In chapter 4, we encountered a, a sea of pure glass, this, this sea of glass or crystal that, that God's throne was on. 
That, that sea now is, is mixed with fire, likely be, because the judgments are about to fall. Yet the sea itself is covered with these victorious martyrs who have withstood the beast. They, they've refused to worship his image. They, they have rejected taking his number. Obviously, the fact that we see them in heaven means they paid the ultimate price for their resistance. They're in heaven rather than on earth, and yet they're spared from the pending judgments. And there they are, joyfully worshiping God, singing and playing harps. And what glorious songs they're singing. They, they have the song of Moses, which looks back either at Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32, where, where Moses led the nation to celebrate God's faithfulness as, as God preserved the nation, bringing them out, forming the nation, bringing them out of Egypt. We have the Song of the Lamb. That, that certainly is a celebration of, of Christ's ultimate victory. As great as the song complete in thee is, I'm sure it pales in comparison to what these martyrs are singing if they stand before the, the Lamb, singing his song. He is been victorious over the forces of the dragon through his willing sacrificial death. Now, as they stand before God, these, these recent martyrs from the tribulation, they're singing here about God's power. They're singing about his righteousness. They're singing about his perfect holiness. They rejoice that, that all the nations are worshiping before him. They're, they're not singing about their own victory. They're, they're not singing about what they've endured. They are singing of God's sovereignty, his justice, his glory. They're focused on the victory that has been theirs through Christ, his victory alone that brings them to this point because God is a holy, just, powerful, merciful God. John listens to this song, and after listening to this praise that's occurring in heaven, he watches as... There's the distribution of the final judgments. Verse 5. After these things, I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It's significant that the inner temple in heaven is opened, that the seven angels and the seven plagues, they, they come from the inner temple where God's holiness manifests itself in a unique way. They, they come with a duty to inflict these, these final seven plagues on the earth, they're, they're coming out of the holiest of sanctuary. They're, they're fully prepared for their assignment. And then one of the four creatures, those unique angels that we first met in chapter 4 that, that reside closest to the throne of God, leading in, in, in constant worship of God, one of those creatures hand the angels these golden bowls that are full of the wrath of God. We should note that the special mention of the eternality of God in verse 7. This is the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. That, that phrase adds a, a solemn cast to the scene here. We, we cannot help uh, but think of Hebrews 10.31. 
it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The God who lives forever and ever. As soon as the seven angels receive these bowls, the, the, the temple fills with smoke. The, the significance is that no one can enter the temple. God is unapproachable during the, the duration of the bowl judgments. There, there will be no intercession. There will be no delay of the judgments. They will come. And that moves us immediately to the execution phrase, phase of the bold judgment. So I'm moving right into chapter 16 because there should not be a pause here as we see the judgments now move. Chapter 16 contains John's vision of the, the bold judgments. As you know, this is the third set of judgments. The, the three sets all end at the end of the tribulation period. Each set zooms in and it gives a little more detail about the, the final days of God's wrath. The, the seventh judgment of the first set, that, that seventh seal, when that one was opened, there were the seven trumpet judgments that came out. The, it's like we zoomed in one notch. The, the seventh trumpet zooms in again, and it's these bold judgments. These seven bowls are the end. They, they come in rapid succession, as we might expect, since there's been so many indications here that the end has come. There, there's no more delays. This is the end. God's mercy, his grace, it's expired. There, there, there's no indication in the text that we're going to look at how long these judgments take to fall in sequence. Uh, you know, is it weeks, months, days? It's hard to imagine that their duration could last more than a few weeks to months, though, without all life perishing from the face of the earth. And we know as we get to the end of the tribulation period that there are still survivors on the earth. The final battle of, of a great human army against the returning Christ it reveals there's still people alive at the end of these seven bowls. So, so I have to believe that, that the total duration of, of these bowl judgments is rather short. The first thing that happens is that John hears a command. The command of, of verse 1, chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple. Notice he hears. He can't see in the temple. It's filled with smoke. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This command comes directly from God. No one can approach God. John cannot see God. He, he only hears the command. And all seven angels receive their command at the same time. They, they are to go and carry out their mission without any further direction. They're, they're to pour out the, the seven bowls of God's wrath in sequence. The implication, again, with this single command is that there will be no further delay. There's no need for further instruction. The angels will not wait for any further instruction either. The time to execute is now. They are to go and do their job. And thus begins the, the final judgments. In verse 2, we have the first bowl. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. There's the first bowl. Bowl. The first angel immediately responds to God's command and pours his bowl, releasing this first judgment of the earth. Several of the, the coming judgments are similar to the plagues that, that Egypt went through. We've seen that in other judgments too. There, there seems to be some, some foreshadowing that those plagues had to the final judgments of God. 
These are much, much more severe, though. This particular judgment is similar to the sixth plague of of Egypt that's recorded in Exodus chapter 9, where Moses took some soot from a kiln and, and threw it in the air, and sores would form on the people and animals throughout the land. In this case, it's much more severe, though. Whatever is in this bowl that the angel pours out, it releases sores on people only, not on animals, but it's worldwide. Specifically, it releases sores on people who have the the mark of the beast and worship his image. So while the judgment is worldwide, it's highly specific. While it's likely, as I said, that the 144,000 witnesses are martyred at this time, there are certainly believers in hiding in various places. We know there are believers who will survive to the end of the seven-year tribulation period. These believers are unaffected by the sores produced by this judgment. It's highly selective. In verse 3 comes the second bowl. Rapid succession. The the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The impression is that this judgment immediately follows the first one. In fact, there is clearly overlap since the sores that we have in the first bowl, they're still around when the fifth judgment comes. I'll give you that hint now. So we know there's overlap. God's final judgments are, are compressed so that the effects are cumulative. The, the people on the earth are feeling the full weight of God's wrath so they don't get any reprieve from one bowl to the next. This second bowl is similar to the, the first Egyptian plague as well as similar to what we saw in the second trumpet. The second trumpet turned a third of the sea into blood. In this case, it's all the sea that is affected. And, and the result is that all marine life within the oceans die. Following the second, we immediately come to the third bowl. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to, to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So, like the previous judgment, like the first Egyptian plague, this also involves turning watered blood. In this case, it is like the third trumpet where it's the the rivers and springs that are impacted. But again, instead of only being a third of them on the earth, it's all of them. That results in the absence of any drinking water from these primary sources of, of fresh water. For the first time in the bold judgments, we hear an angelic commentary. An angel, not one of the, the angels that are pouring out the bowls, but a different angel. The, the angel that's given the title, the angel of the waters. This angel gives a commentary expressing his approval for the appropriateness of the judgment. I'll just note in passing that in Revelation chapter 7, 1, we had four angels, if you look back there, that were in charge of the winds of the earth. In, in Revelation 9, verse 11, we, we saw, I mentioned an angel who had authority over the abyss. In Revelation fourteen eighteen, we had an angel that had power over fire. So apparently, there's angels with different responsibilities. And here we have an angel that's assigned the responsibility for waters in creation. 
what his responsibilities might be exactly, I'll leave that to, to you to speculate. At any rate, he's in an authoritative position. This is his area of, of responsibility over the water. So he's in an authoritative position to comment on the judgment. And he notes that the judgment fits the crime. The, the people on the earth, they have sought and killed saints and prophets. It's fitting that they're given blood to drink. This is an act of the righteous, eternal, holy God giving them what they deserve. Again, there, there seems to be an implication that this judgment somehow does not affect any believers on the earth. Because the angel of the waters note they deserve this judgment. Well, well that can only apply to those who are loyal to the beast. Though, those who remain faithful to God would certainly not deserve blood to drink. It's their blood that's being sought by the beast worshippers. They're, they're on the right side of things. So again, it seems like this judgment somehow works so that believers are, are pre preserved from it. Moving on to the fourth bowl in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. This judgment delivers scorching heat from the sun. This will be global warming in the extreme. There will be a time of global warming. The, the people on the earth will suffer greatly. There's already limited water. They don't have water to drink. And now they'll have scorching heat. Certainly the, the judgment will also have a devastating effect on vegetation. There, there will be no relief. Yet notice that, that while the sun is the source of their agony, there, there is a clear understanding that this torment comes from God. Of course, rather than, than repent of their rebellion against God, the, the beast worshippers blaspheme God. By, by this point in time, e eternal destinies are fixed. There, there's no repentance there's only steadfast rebellion from those who have cast their lot with the Antichrist. One question that comes to my mind is whether or not here again will believers be affected by this judgment along with unbelievers. Certainly believers will not blaspheme God, so maybe they're given some sort of divine reprieve, but how that would work when the sun's heating the entire planet, I have no idea. So these are things you can speculate on. We just know that the unbelievers respond to this judgment with blasphemies against God. In verse 10, we have the fifth bowl. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. This judgment is somewhat like the fourth trumpet where the, the light on the earth was reduced by a third in some fashion. Um, it, it's very similar to the ninth Egyptian plague too where all of Egypt was cast in darkness for three days with the exclusion of, of the Israelite territory. In this case though, things are flipped. Here, the entire earth is being scorched by sun but the center of the Antichrist rule is cast in darkness. Now, there's some debate as to the extent of the darkness since the, the kingdom of the beast is mentioned in verse 10. It, it may be that only the capital is dark, 
There, there could be a geographical part of the earth or around the capital, an area there that's considered his kingdom, even though he rules the entire world at this time. I suppose it's possible this judgment's worldwide, but seems to not be that. Seems like this is unique, that his kingdom's dark and he has no power to, to provide light even while the rest of the earth is being scorched. What we do know is at least a part of the earth will be dark, and this will be the portion that most represents the Antichrist's center of power, right where his power resides. In the dark, it seems as if the pain that the people are experiencing from the previous judgment takes on expanded significance. When they're unable to see, they're, they're much more conscious of what they're feeling. I, I think we've all experienced that at some level. When, when things go dark, you're, you're more sensitive to, to your, your, your touch. While the sores from the first bowl continue to inflict them with pain, so they gnaw their tongues. Again, Note that the people have no doubt that the God of heaven is responsible for this event. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that, that God exists, that he's a reality, that, that he is the one with the power and, and is the source of these things. That knowledge leads to further blasphemy by, by them, not repentance. There's no relief for the people as... as we move into verses 12 through 16, and we immediately come to the sixth bowl. And I saw coming out of, whoops, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is somewhat of an unusual judgment. It's an unusual judgment in that what it does is it provides the, the necessary preparation for the final battle that will bring the tribulation to a close. Verses 13 through 16 are, are not a, a brief interlude. What they, they are is John's vision momentarily shifting. They, they give an expanded explanation of the judgment in verse 12. The judgment itself is the drying up of the Euphrates. The reason this happens is so that the kings of the east could bring their armies to the final battle in the land of, of Israel. That, that mean, the means by which the kings are gathered is what verses 16 through, or 13 through 16 are all about, these, these frog demons. We'll encounter it when we get to chapter 19, but most likely we all know, or most of us would know, that the final battle of the tribulation period uh, occurs when the armies of the earth allied in, in allegiance under the Antichrist, when they prepare to meet the returning Christ. They know that Christ is coming with his armies of saints, and they prepare to do battle against him. Well, setting up the necessary physical conditions for these earthly armies to assemble is actually a judgment of God. God's judgment is to allow people to assemble so that they, they can gather to face his fierce power, the, the fierce power of Christ. You may recall from chapter 13 that, that Satan 
in his attempts to mimic God, form this unholy trinity with, as I mentioned, with the Antichrist and the false prophet, those two beasts from that chapter. Well, in verse 13, John sees three demons sent out to gather the kings of their together, three demonic emissaries that go out. These demons are said to be like frogs. I really have no idea what that means, why, why that's put in there. Um, they, if they, I don't know if it means they have the appearance of frogs or, or what, but it seems like they spread out throughout the earth and they incite the various rulers who have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist to commit all of their armies to this coming battle. They, and they bring these armies they, to this place called Armageddon. Armageddon be, becomes the, the staging areas uh, of the Antichrist forces. This is most likely the, the hill country around the plain of Megiddo in, in Israel. The, the kings of the earth, they, they respond to the summons of the Antichrist under the in, demonic influence and enticement of these frog demons, and they assemble for war. Verse 15 is a little parenthetical expression that, that's added by John to, to remind his readers that, that the coming of Christ will occur with unexpected suddenness. There's debate whether this is a note for the believers before the rapture that they need to be ready at any time or if it's for the saints who are in the tribulation period that the arrival of Christ will come with great suddenness. Both things are true. Both ideas are true. Both make sense of the context. What we know is John says that the person needs to remain spiritually alert. He needs to stay awake. He needs to be spiritually prepared. He needs to keep his clothes. And, and the person who does that, John says, is blessed. He is ready for the sudden return. Which leads to the final judgment. Verse 17, the seventh bowl. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. This final bowl is the end. The voice from the temple is heard once more as soon as the seventh angel pours out its bowl. It is done. God speaks. His judgment upon creation is finished. Now, the reality is it will take us a few more chapters to go through the details of this final judgment. John's vision is expanded and he sees this happen. We're just giving a quick summary here. He'll see the capital and the false religion Antichrist destroyed. That's detailed in chapters 17 and 18. We'll have the assembled army of the Antichrist and the kings of the world annihilated in, in chapter 19. So he'll receive the details of all these things, but this all happens as part of the seventh bowl. In, in our verses, we're just giving a quick summation of the cataclysmic events that, that occur as this judgment falls upon the earth. The first thing noted is an unprecedented earthquake. Along with lightning and thunder, an earthquake greater than, than any before will occur. Now, there was a great earthquake when the sixth 
seal was opened all the way back in chapter 6. That one was so great that, that people fled to the mountains and, and tried to hide from God and the wrath of the Lamb. They were calling for the, the, the stones to fall on them because the earthquake was so severe. Yet that great earthquake was nothing compared to this final one. That will be minor compared to this. Islands will disappear. Mountains will disappear. Jerusalem, the, the great city in verse 19, will, will be split into three parts. Babylon, the, the capital of the Antichrist, will be destroyed. It will be an unprecedented earthquake, such as the world has never, ever experienced. Along with that, a second unparalleled aspect of the, the final judgment are huge hailstones that fall. These hailstones will be approximately 100 pounds each. Can you imagine a 100-pound chunk of ice falling from the sky? We, we've all seen the damage that the hail can inflict. Well, the largest hailstone ever in the United States was 8 inches in diameter. That, that was, is huge in our frame of reference. If you think about hailstones, think about hailstone 8 inches in diameter. We've never seen one like that, but that's the largest in, in America. Well, that hailstone weighed less than 2 pounds. These hailstones will be 100 pounds. The heaviest hailstone ever recorded in the world is two and a half pounds. These hailstones are 100 pounds. The world's never seen anything remotely like this. When, when these hailstones strikes, the destruction will be massive. Buildings will be destroyed. People will be obliterated. Once again, the, the people on the receiving end of this judgment, they will have no doubt that God is the source. Again, John sees the, the men of the earth blaspheming God because of the suffering that his wrath brings upon them. There's no repentance. There's only rebellion. These two unprecedented events, the, the earthquakes and the hailstones, they're, they're likely the, the precipitating events that, that prompt the Antichrist to gather his armies to wage war against Christ. He and the rest of mankind know that, that these things are from the hand of God. They know that Christ is coming. And they prepare to meet him in battle. This is the seventh bowl. Massive cataclysmic destruction. As I indicated, we'll continue to unpack this as in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we'll look at the, the further details John's given in the chapters yet to come. Still, what we've seen tonight should leave us breathless. Though the way it's delivered one after the other, it should leave us breathless. Each bowl judgment by itself is nearly unimaginable, and yet John recounts them in rapid succession, compounding the enormity of it all. It just keeps piling upon those who are upon the earth rebelling against God. This is God's wrath in full. Surely we can rejoice that, that we will not experience any of these things. As I've said before, we can rejoice that we'll be long gone before these things unfold, uh, assuming that, that we know Jesus is Savior. Still, I, I think there is a lesson that, that we can take with us this evening from, from what we've looked at. The, the lesson that I want us to walk away with tonight is that God's holiness calls forth severe judgment. God's holiness. That calls forth severe This evening, we, we read two expressions of praise. We, we saw the song of the victorious saints back in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And then we had the, the words of the angel of the waters in, in verses 5 and 6 of 16.
In, in both cases, the, the focus of the praise was on the righteousness of God's judgment, combined with the holiness of his nature. Even the words from the altar in, in verse 7 of chapter 16 express that right, the, the righteousness of these judgments that, that God had produced. We need to recognize that these judgments, as extreme as they are, they are fully consistent with God's holiness. In fact, we need to understand that it's God's holiness that requires these judgments. God is holy. As we read in, in chapter 16, verse 5, He is holy because He judges. He must judge in His holiness. These judgments reveal His righteousness. We, we have to keep that straight in our minds. If we are to truly worship God, we must worship Him in His holiness, in His righteousness. We, we cannot diminish God's judgment without undermining His holiness. A holy God will judge severely all rebellion against Him. That's what we're seeing in these judgments. God's holiness calls forth severe judgment. Let's pray. Father, this evening we've seen in a couple different ways the, the magnitude 